0: Hello and welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for today's community question roundup with Ramesh Gulati and myself, Ryan, the CEO and founder of UpKey. As you all know, uh, we are on the Maintenance Mavericks podcast. It's a podcast for people who want to learn all things about maintenance and reliability. In this episode, again, we're going to be reviewing questions submitted by the members of our maintenance community Slack group. We're going to hear some insights from one of our maintenance experts and residents The Reliability Sherpa himself, Ramesh (laughs) Ladi. All right, for those of you that don't know, the Our Maintenance Community Slack group is an awesome place for people in maintenance and reliability to ask questions, learn from other people all around the world. We've got 5,000 members in different industries, different countries, and it's a great place to share experiences and learn from other people. If you haven't already, join the Maintenance Community Slack group at upkeep.org slash slack. All right, today, Ramesh and I are super excited to do a deep dive into real questions asked by our community members within our Slack group. Personally, what I love most about our maintenance community Slack group is the topic span from high-level questions to on-the-ground on the problem solving. I'm super excited to dig in and hear your take on these questions, Ramesh. You ready to jump in? Yes, sir. I'm ready to jump in. So the first question that we've got, and, you know, Ramesh, we've done this a few times. The first question that we've got for, for you is, how do we better promote the role of maintenance technicians since interest in skilled trades is decreasing
1: every single year? I'll tell you, this is a great question. A lot of people ask me when I start training in my, you know, sessions. Yes, there is a skills, scarcity of skilled workforce, especially maintenance and reliable technicians. This is really very significant concern to all of us. With the rise of all computers, smartphones, and all these advancements, our young generation, so-called iGen or Millenniums, are not that much interested in a hands-on or make reliability maintenance kind of work. Really, if you think about it, if you go to high schools, where our young guys get educated? You know, way back 10, 15, 20 years ago, all the high schools used to have a workshops in their in high schools like welding, carpentry, car repair shops, all these kind of things where they used to learn hands-on skill. If you go now, all the high school, those shops have gone. They're closed. In so that, they have opened up computer shops and all this kind of, you know, but everybody can't be a software engineer or software developer to develop games and those kind of things. We need people in the our factories, in our plants, you know, we want plumbers and pipe fitters and electricians, all those things. And we don't have so I think we all have to pitch in in this or our organization have to work with our high school and, you know, in the middle schools and let them start these shops. In fact, I've been involved with the, this programs, you know, where we go to high schools and help them to start these shops again. That's what we have to do. We all have to work. And I think the state of Tennessee where I live has done is doing a good job. They just opened up a new facility in our Nissan plan near there. And it's kind of a joint venture with the industry as well as the state of Tennessee. They opened a training shop, vocational school kind of a, they are providing all these kind of training to our young people in the new, you know, hands-on kind of things, you know. So I think what I've seen recently that is there's a small hope That the next few years we go back to high schools and let them learn hands-on kind of skills. I mean,
0: I I was actually just trying to look and find there. There's a stat I was reading it yesterday from Deloitte, and I think the the tune of like two million open jobs in manufacturing right now that are have gone unfilled. And so, kind of talk about like the need for skilled trade, the need of you know, people going into manufacturing industry, and the need is literally right now: two million unfilled jobs in manufacturing that cannot be filled because the demand um, is, you know, to go into the labor force is not there.
1: Well, again, also think about if there is a problem in our high school. As I said, our counselors and the advisors they think. They can make money only if they go to graduate school or something. There's a lot of money they can make, good money, if you become a a high-skilled person like an electrician or a builder. You can make good money, $70,000, $80,000 or $90,000, that range, you know, once you get the trade, you know. So there's a lot of openings are there, you know, currently. Yeah, 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 and I think people don't realize that, you know,
0: electricians, plumbers, like, Technicians, reliability engineers, like these are high-paying salary roles. That's right. Many, many companies.
1: I mean, I've seen some of my our people I knew in our workplace. They wanted a good money, and they went to Canada. Upon those where, well, Welder, they are making hundred twenty grand. I mean, that kind of money you can make. Good money, you know. So it's not just a software person makes money anymore, you know. It's, yeah. So that was a good question I think we all have to work make sure our young people are we encourage them to you know go to in this kind of a, a training or get education and so on kind of skill.
0: All right next question for you Ramesh how do you maintain constant communication between different departments? within an organization? What are the roles that come together that we have to come together in order for us to have a streamlined process? I think where this question is really coming at is like, how have you seen and what have you seen work really well at the best organizations
1: to communicate cross departmentally super effectively? You know, communication is a key thing. If we communicate within a company or whatever, spend 60 70 80 percent of our time in communicating by you know writing presentations or doing something but problem is we are living in silos and many many companies i have seen live in a silos manufacturing doesn't operation doesn't talk to you know engineering or i mean again they do some communication but not to that much and that's a problem in fact the asset management which i talk a lot. I've been involved with asset management, and asset management starts from all always. We have to talk to procurement people. We have to talk to capital project people. We have to talk to operation people. Major. All have to work together, understand what the needs are, and to have to pitch in. All are stakeholders in those kind. Similarly, all our departments people need to talk. I think what's happened is each department, and again that goes to more on a a manager, a vice president, or directors, those people have to force that issue, communication among all different departments. To say, really, communication within, I tell you, our company, and we did a great job, our CEO, he used to, you know, write, emails, weekly, he used to write something on monthly and then used to have a, a town hall meeting or every six months. What's happening? Tell people to communicate, open them. Hey, you need to talk to each other. Uh, that's again, to me, it's a lot more dependent upon who's your head honcho, general manager or, or directors or your managers, they have to start communicating with the people, what's going on, how they can help, how they can, do they know where the company is going, where organization is going, and that communication has to be there. Again, it's a, not individual, and we have to get out of this silos.
0: I totally agree with that. Yeah, you know, it's a big part of what we're trying to do here at Upkeep is really democratize the data to everyone within the organization, you know, maintenance, reliability, asset management data shouldn't just belong to the maintenance team. You know, what we do, why we do it should cross pollinate across every single department. You know, what we've seen actually work really well is kind of like a weekly report publishing, like what was done, why it was done and the impact that it had across, you know, many different stakeholders. And you kind of keep this weekly cadence up because it really showcases you know, what's going on in different departments, because it's so easy to lose the empathy of what one other
1: department is going through if you never hear about it. I'll tell you another example I give you, and this is really, most of us in engineering, or we, we order parts, we don't talk to procurement. We just send the requirement, hey, buy this. And we were having a problem. We were trying to do reliability. We were having some components were failing. So one day, we and our, I was running reliability engineering group, and I got all my hydraulics engineers. We were talking about, you know, what pump we are using, how to standardize those things, challenges. So I really took a lead. I called our procurement guy who was looking at that area, got him in the meeting. Then we started talking, hey, this cylinder doesn't work, these are the issues, these pumps are good for us, these are not good for us. So he his eye opened up. He he said, hey guys, I didn't know that. That you know, you have a standardized this kind of thing. So getting them involved and having sharing that knowledge really helped all over the organization. So it's kind of a somebody has to take a lead at getting people involved.
0: Absolutely. Next question for us, how does one manage the people challenge in embracing practices that improve machine and component reliability? I think the question here is is probably more around like the the change management across the people. That's right. Yeah. That's what I talk to. (laughs) I think all of us understand more reliable equipment means, you know, better production, better reliability, better productivity for the entire team. But... Changing, getting to that end state requires a lot of people change. That's
1: exactly right. You know, to me, anytime we want to implement the best practice, it's improvement. And improvement is a change. When you try to implement that change, unless until it's going to help me, I'm not going to change my habits. It's people's habits. And you have to change, you have to create that scenario where you tell the person hey, how is going to help him or her to do her job better. Okay, so we have to create with him what's in for me, yeah. you know, and that's a kind of a change management. You know, you have to talk to even I tell you when we were implementing this CMMS system I'm talking back in the 80s, we did a lot of uh, Training, awareness training, high level. We did a by role training. We did all kind of a hands-on training, all kinds of things we had to do to make sure how that's going to help person to planner or supervisor or procurement guys all these people who were involved with this system is going to help them to do their job better and how easily the information flow and those kind of things so i think you're right it's kind of a change management we have to let people understand how this process change is going to help them to do their job better
0: I love the framework that you brought up, you just briefly mentioned it, but I actually think it's the most important thing that, you know, people forget about what, which is the what's in it for me. When you drive change within an organization as selfless, as we hope that everyone is. So really taking any kind of change and looking at it from the perspective of what's in it for them, what's in it for each individual, I think actually helps drive a lot of positive change management
1: because you put yourself in their shoes. That's right. I mean, planner, if I'm going to have CMMS system or something, how is going to help planner to do his job, right? Or material guy or something. You know, what's in for me? This really happened to me. I think I was traveling somewhere and got a car, rented car. When I got in my car and started driving, I suddenly realized that I don't have a dashboard. My dashboard was, it was a Yaris Toyota Yaris. This was eight or 10 years ago. They moved dashboard in the center. Again, they had a good reason for that because they wanted, hey, steering wheel, they can put on left side or right side, depending on which country they're going to make. But they didn't ask me how it's going to impact on me. I'm the user. But they didn't talk to me or they didn't tell me when I got the car. And boy, those half hour, 30, 40 minutes I was driving somewhere, my head was going like this. I was doing this all the time because I have to see what speed I'm driving. I didn't have to turn, you know, in the center to see that, how, what mileage I am driving timing, you know, what of speed. So it was a big change on me. Similarly, people who are doing their job, is this change going to help them or not? You know, so if unless until it's helped my, and I have to change people's behavior for good reason, for the good thing, you
0: know. Yeah, totally right. You know, the next question kind of talks about a very like topical issue right now, which is you know, the supply chain issue. The question that someone asked us, what they said is the world right now is running short of everything due to the supply chain issues. A few days before Thanksgiving, I tried to get gravy at a local grocery store, but they ran out and told me they're not gonna have any in stock until after the holiday. You know, I checked multiple stores and they're all sold out as well. I've never experienced this before. Do we just have to get used to this shortage in the supply chain are there any solutions? So maybe there's kind of like two questions here, Ramesh. Yeah. One is like, what's going on, mm-hmm. number one, and then two, when do you think it's gonna end and what do you think the solutions are to this supply
1: chain issue? Well, the way I was looking this question is there two things. First thing is that, uh, you know, most of our supplies are coming from out of country, you know, there's some we're going to come back in this country also, but most of our supplies are coming from Asia or somewhere because we got used to this used to cheap stuff to speak you know, and that's has helped really what that encouraged us to close our plants here excuse me, and we became too dependent on this now that's supply chain issue we are having okay. Now, their supply chain issues are there a lot of port con- congestion there. Ports are really full. There's a container shortage. I was just talking. In fact, this morning I was looking at Bloomberg and they were talking about these three, four points. Hey, we don't have a containers. I mean, there's a shortage of those. Plant shut down due to, again, lack of skilled people or due to COVID also. There's a shortage of people. And all these issues are really giving us a lot of challenges. And I think with the infrastructure bill and money coming in, so it's going to take us a few years to yeah. put our infrastructure back, which is going to help us. I think we all have learned that we cannot you know, completely shut down our thing or go everywhere outside the you know, US and get the things from there. I mean, each country has to do some, their own production or something, keep that. And with the infrastructure, the water pipelines are so bad in some place, cities and some places. And the other day I was reading a U.N. report that so much, about 50 or 60% of good water, we lose through our bad in, piping infrastructure. We have to, I think this money bill is going to help us to recover some of those issues. Hopefully, in a short period, we're going to face these issues and another six months, a year things will get better.
0: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And you know, I've kind of had a few discussions with many of these experts in the past around the supply chain issue. We got used to basically low cost goods and oftentimes it comes from different countries in order to drive the down the cost we move to this like just in time manufacturing just in time you know supplies and ultimately what that does is yeah you create a lot of single points of failure and when you have one of these it just creates a domino effect and that's ultimately that's right. what, what happened
1: you know, is this your supply chain is really our just-in-time philosophy has to work if your supply chain is working right. Yeah. You know? You know, so if that doesn't work right, if you start putting a lot more, I give example, you know, this is when Walmart you buy a toothpaste or something. At the end of the day, that how many toothpaste you buy goes to whosoever their supply, and next day they supply those things. You know, they make those many number of those many, you know, suppose you use a 20 of those, they're gonna supply you 20 of those. But if you take suddenly 50, you know. Hey, that's going to create a problem. You cannot make down. 50. You know? Yeah. So, because their setup is for so many, you know, on average, you know. So, yeah. So that's an issue. It's going to take a while to set those one to make some. And warehouse problems, that's another problem. Yeah. You know, warehouse, where are we going to store, we don't have a space in the warehouses.
0: Yeah, it, it definitely is this um, domino effect. And then, to your point, like everything gets exacerbated. Once you say shortage, people go out and hoard. And I'll tell you, Ramesh, I'm very, very guilty of this. You know, I'm a big tennis player, and I heard recently that there was going to be a tennis ball shortage um, because of the supply chain. And I went to
1: my local big five and I bought a bunch of tennis cans because we all do that. It's not you; it's we all do that. You know, hey, we hear it. There's long line. Let's buy. Two extra things, or five extra, or something, you know. So that's uh, our old habits. You know? <laughs> it's going to happen.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. I'm definitely guilty of that. You know, you, we kind of briefly alluded to this, but ultimately the infrastructure bill was just passed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts? What's going on with the infrastructure bill? What do you think about it? Is it going to make a difference?
1: There's a breach over. Mississippi River in Memphis. About a year ago, a year and a half ago, they found a crack. It was there for, for a long time. Somehow, it was inspection didn't do a right job, inspector, and they missed it. And finally, it cracked, and they have, it was down for all, almost a year. It took them to do a patch-up work almost a year. I just, I was in a conference, they were telling, you know, how they found it and all these kinds of things, but. I mean, those are kind of our basic transportation means. Now, due to that bridge was down at Mississippi River from between Arkansas and Tennessee, main bridge on I-40, they have to reroute another 70, 80 miles, something like that. You know, how much cost will go. So I think this infrastructure will hopefully build our structure back to where it should be so we can get A or B grain instead of C and D. You know, and that's our water structure, our infrastructure. Hopefully, what I saw, there's a money for each area for bridges, for the roads, for the dams, you know, and for the airport and all kind of things. Hopefully, that's going to help for next 8 or 10 years. We're going to keep spending money, and that's going to help us to do a our better shape our infrastructure, which mm-hmm. is help our supply chain management. Yeah.
0: I mean, so here's one thing that's going on through my mind, Ravash. I feel like we've, we've always talked about like investing in our infrastructure. We've always talked about like, you know, building back our, our bridges and roads and you know, really investing in the infrastructure of, of, you know, the society that we live in. I don't think that's, I don't think anyone questions the importance of that. We've been talking about it for a while. And I, I, yeah. I have this like intuition that like, we're going to pass this bill, but we're still going to have problems in our day to day. maybe that's warranted, maybe it's not. But I don't, I don't know, like, do you have any thoughts around that? Like, is this just going to be another one of these things that we say no. we're going to do? And then ultimately, you know, five, 10 years later, we're still having the same problems? Or do you think it's actually going to be different this time? <laughs> well, I
1: think it's going to be a little bit different because I know this problem is there from eight, 10, 15 years we have been hearing it. Our roads are bad, bridges are bad, you know, because civil engineering society is Rating those, giving them C and D, all kind of thing. Again, politics, it's all politics, you know. Whatever, in a business, we can take a decision. At that government level, politics play a big game. I think all, as you said, we all realize that, hey, we have to do something. Otherwise, we'll be in pretty bad shape. So hopefully, now bill is passed. So we got going to have to get money. Money coming, you know, it takes time. I tell you, I have worked for the government indirectly for the Air Force to get some money to do something. We are talking millions of dollars when we're talking. It takes you to plan something like there was a, we wanted to build a new test facility, okay? The old one had a problem. They thought about it. Hey, we had to do something back in sixties. They put something together hey, we need to do this. Went to government, for asked for money. It was approved. It took 8, 10 years to get that money. Then it took 8, 10 years to build that facility. Yeah. So by that time it got built, it was 30 years old already. <laughs> you have to go back and rebuild all control systems and all these kinds of things. <laughs> so it's the government. That's the way they are slow. in. You know, It takes time. You know then there's a funding issue of color of money you cannot take this color of money mixed with this with mixed with that where private organization they can come and allocate money and get it done two years
0: so what i hear from you is that you know it's gonna take time it'll be a little bit slower but you know it sounds like you're optimistic ramesh and because <laughs> yes. of that i, I I'm optimistic too. All right. (laughs) All right. Let's talk about some like cool trends within um, technology and reliability, remote condition monitoring. Um, What are some of the tools that you use that you've seen other people use in terms of technology and reliability, condition monitoring inspections?
1: A good friend of mine, Jack Nicholas, who is a PDM expert. He used to run PDM uh, company and he wrote a book in his book. He says, what's happening in in this technology field. 1980s, chips came, microprocessor came. We, that time we came portable data collector devices. Then in 90s, laptop came and we got software package to collect the data and do a little bit better job. Then 2000, now we is transferring the data. Last few years, this last decade, Now we have got IoT, smart sensors, those are, in fact, I just got a fluke, just sent me a new camera, portable camera. You know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, we thought cameras are cheap, infrared camera, ultrasonic gun. So we wanted to give to our each crew a camera and ultrasonic gun but it was still expensive. It was five or 10 grand. So then we said, no, maybe we cannot do, but now they're so cheap that yeah. every crew can have a camera ultrasonic gun. It's a five, six, a you know, couple of thousand dollars. And that's what is going to happen. All the smart sensor and all our data collection devices are getting some so small. And cheap that I think our people need to have them, everyone can have it, you know.
0: Yeah, so to that point, Ramesh, I don't think people realize the significance of this because you know, ultrasound has been around for forever. Yeah, but the, the technological change here, and to your point, is that ultrasound and you know, other PDM tools like mm-hmm. remote condition monitoring tools, the price has been dropped by a fraction of the cost. That's right. The big opportunity here is that now you can start monitoring equipment that you couldn't just financially, you couldn't monitor before because it was too expensive. And That's what right. this does is it opens up a completely like entirely new opportunity for new people, new jobs, new assets that you're, you know, monitoring and tracking it, it enables, you know, our you know customers reliability managers now have bigger sets of data on equipment that they previously just could not make financial sense to monitor because it was so expensive that's
1: right and, and i think also there's another part is a training educating our people yeah i mean that's again i have seen i have that i got i mean we have a matrix for how much money we should spend on the training about five six percent i got even eight percent nowadays many companies they give only two or three percent one percent means about 20 hours per person something like this one percent because two thousand man hours per person in a year so you take a five percent is about 100 hours per person and that is the minimum necessary to educate our people i mean these new tools are available they are cheap But we have to educate our people on how to use this, how to make best use of those tools. How, you know, that's another part is that as a company or organization, if I'm a a leader or manager, I must make sure we can buy those tools, give to them, also train them. There's a funny
0: like meme going around right now. And it's kind of like a manager and their boss kind of speaking and the manager goes like, or the boss goes, you know, what happens if we invest in training people and then they leave? And yeah. the response back is kind of like, what if we don't and they don't,
1: stay? That's <laughs> exactly right. In fact, our chief engineer way back, I'm talking almost 20 years ago, he was so adamant when they said cut the training budget, he said, no, we don't want to cut training budget. You know, if, we, if those person don't leave, then what's going to happen? That's a waste of money. No, it's not a waste of money. You suppose it doesn't leave, then what's going to happen? So really, we have to prepare. I mean, technology is there. Those tools have become very dirt cheap to speak as compared to what used to be. So, but we have to prepare our people. We have to spend money on those tools and in educating the, our workforce too.
0: Let's talk about uh, production planning. Best practices for production planning on a manufacturing company.
1: Tell us some of the, the tricks of the trade. <laughs> well, I was involved with the production planning, implementing a tool back in seventies. It's called ERP, Enterprise Resource Plan. That's what that tool is. Where I give you an example, of what you do is, if I have to make a, I got a fountain pen or let's say hammer or something, you know, any tool, it takes whatever order you get. Hey, I have to make a red pen or thousand hammers, claw hammers or something. So it takes that hammer and breaks down in a small component. you know. And then once you do that small component, then it goes to the protection shop to take. We have to make thousands of these hammers we uh, the claws and we need a handle, we need this. So it breaks down and give the work order to each shop to build those. And then there's an assembly area where they assemble it. So that tool, Used to be a just for production planning. Now it has a, it's a tool has expanded from sales to marketing. All it can take the same tool. ERP can do the all kind of stuff. Most of it, companies have that. You know, they, without that they cannot work it. It's like a, we do work planning. This for them production planning. Yep. Yeah. We're
0: very, very familiar with ERPs and you know, the the whole resource planning component of it, you know, some people like their ERPs, some people hate it, but I think to your point Ramesh, it's absolutely necessary necessary. um, to be able to take something from, you know, actually starts at marketing, right? The awareness drive it down to the sales. Like, what do we need? What are we selling and have that go all the way down into the shop floor. And then back up into yeah. like the customer relationship yeah. management tool, Chipping, all shipping shipping supply chain, like it, it is a very, very important tool. And, you know, there's some, there's tons of best practices on, you know, ERP production planning out there.
1: You know, it is a CMMS when it started back in 70s, 80s, it yeah. was scheduling PMs only back yeah. in the 70s. Okay, it was just automating our index system. I know I worked with the index, you know, PMs monthly or those, and it was automated. Then we added planning. Then we added materials and all kind of things added. Same thing, ERP was started was the production. You break it down, give to shops. Now it's added marketing to sales to the shop floor to the shipping. All these things, module have been added and the financial financial system also. And each one has its own best planning or best practices in it, you know. So how to do those things.
0: And that wraps up all of our questions for today, Ramesh. Thank you so much for taking the time to answer some of our community members' questions. If any of our listeners want to receive answers to their own questions, join us in our Slack uh, community at upkeep.org. You can receive live answers from fellow members or hear from Ramesh Gulati himself in our monthly roundup. Again, thank you so much, Ramesh. My name is Ryan, I'm the CEO and founder of Upkeep. I hope to talk to you next time and uh, thank you again. Everyone enjoy their, the rest of their day.
1: Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, everyone. And keep up a good questions coming.
0: All How right. we can help
1: you. <laughs>